Welcome. Thanks for coming out this morning. Thanks for joining us online. Take your Bibles and turn again with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, looking at chapter 8 today, the first 15 verses, Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 15. A very basic question this morning. Are you enjoying life? I mean, like currently with whatever's going on, are you enjoying life? Sometimes we don't ask ourselves the most basic questions, and I think we need to. And this is an important one. You might say, well, I'm surviving life. Or someone may say, I'm enjoying ice cream or something very specific. But are you enjoying life? Because this passage and actually the next one in Ecclesiastes and actually several that we've encountered before are God's Word telling us we should enjoy life. Specifically, what we see this morning is that we can enjoy life in spite of any injustices, anything that's wrong in the world or our world. So we're going to take a look at that. How can we enjoy life when unjust things take place? And the key to this is really right here in the very first verse, and then we'll see it's in verse 15, but sandwiched between are some joy stealers that we have to reckon with. Verse 1, Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. It's a way of describing a smile. What will bring joy? What will bring a smile to our face? It's wisdom does that. And it changes our stern, serious, worried, anxious demeanor. An attitude. The amazing thing about joy that comes from wisdom is that it's contagious. You hang around people like this and you find that it begins to infect others. And God is calling us to do that no matter what's going on in the world or in our life. I had a, a routine doctor's appointment this past week and the lady at the front desk was someone who had this joyous attitude. And I imagine that uh, with her position, greeting people as they come in, she's, she's greeting people who are sick, people maybe who are dying, getting tests run. And yet she had joy, and it, you could tell it, it impacted people that walked in the door. We need more of those and, and uh, maybe less of some of those that you sometimes meet someplace that really you wish you could give them a smile. When you, when you read Ecclesiastes, maybe for the first time, you can be kind of overwhelmed with the negativity. And so some, as they're trying to read through and muddle through the book of Ecclesiastes, have concluded that, you know, Solomon is really, a, he's like, is he depressed or something? And the reality is, he's not depressed at all. He's very realistic, but in fact, what we're discovering is that the theme, a a major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is what we're talking about today, having joy, 
No matter how troublesome and meaningless was his keyword, things might be. Let me just take you back a little bit. We looked at this chart several weeks ago that kind of summarizes the cycles of Ecclesiastes. These are the first three cycles, and in fact, today we come to the end of that one. The, uh, the first one was describing all things are vanity and, and, and everything is meaningless and seemingly worthless. But then we encountered in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, that when we live grateful for life from God and we live with God and we live for God, God gives us joy. And then he dives back in again to why things are, are empty so often. And then he comes up for air again in chapter 5 and says essentially the same thing. And so now we've been looking at a cycle of how riches and other things are, are all empty, but this is, the, this is where he's going, that though all these things are empty, now he's transitioning, and this is the key passage, to saying, but if you are wise, that's how you will have joy. Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. That is the key. If you jump ahead to verse 15, where we'll end up today, he says this, I commend, so I commend the enjoyment of life, because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. So these are like bookends, but realize between them, we will encounter now two stark realities. Here they are. Submitting to an imperfect human government and then accepting God's sovereignty when life is unfair. These are are big ones, aren't they? But remember that he's actually teaching us about joy when these realities are part of our lives. So maybe you need this today. Uh, Maybe we need permission to... Enjoy life even if we are frustrated with government, not that that ever happens. Even if we've chafed under unfair practices by somebody against us, like that never happens. But choosing joy. Wise people, verse 1, understand life, the realities, but yet they smile and they give joy to others. So the key to joy is not better circumstances. Sure, that helps. But the key to joy is not better circumstances. The key to joy is godly wisdom. So let's make sure we understand how we achieve a godly wisdom that brings joy. So flip back a few pages to chapter 2 at the end of that first cycle where there's a nice, concise statement of, of how we get wisdom and thus joy. Chapter 2, verse 26, just the first half of the verse To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Don't you love it when the Bible is just so simple and clear? To the man, the woman, the young person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and not surprisingly, joy, happiness. I I would encourage you, if you want a, a practical step today, maybe on a three-by-five card, or maybe a reminder on your phone one, two, or three times a day, to even just put those first, that first half of that verse and remind yourself repeatedly, like do a seven-day dosage, okay? 
remind yourself that if you live to please God, you will have both wisdom and thus you will have joy. So you would find yourself then thinking, what is the attitude God wants me to have today in this situation? What is the thing he wants me to do? Who, do, who does he want me to serve? Who does, he, does, does he want me to give something to somebody? Does he want me to forgive someone? Does he want me to, to think about someone with grace instead of criticism? Or, or what would it be that would please him? And see what it does to your attitude. See if it brightens your face. See if you see the reflection of your face in your spouse, in your children. Try it seven days. Now, between these joy statements, though, we, are, we, we must plunge through and, and, and work through the harsh realities. And we must admit that sometimes we as Christians, who should be the first to understand what it means to rejoice in the Lord, can sometimes be the most stern-faced, the most frustrated maybe the most joyless people, maybe because we understand life so well, maybe because we're upset with government, maybe because something is unfair and God's not fixing it, but let's not be those joyless people, but joyful. So let's take a look at the first joy stealer, and it sounds like today's news instead of written 3,000 years ago, but that's how God's word is. The wise person submits to imperfect human Rulers, verse 2, obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. And I just want to note that different translations, there are some phrases that are difficult to understand in our passage today, so you might see a different term. A couple of them have to do with uh, different readings in some uh, Hebrew manuscripts. So if you see something a little different, listen carefully. But because you took an oath before God, you should obey the king's command. Do not be hurried to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause because he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Obey rulers for God's sake. We'll look at a mo- in a moment at some passages we studied more deeply a few months ago uh, in the New Testament. But let's just address a, a, a kind of an obvious uh, exception issue. But what about... Because Acts 4 and 5 tells us that there are some times when we must obey God rather than man. And those situations, if it regards government, is basically this. If we are told by government to stop doing something that the Bible tells us we must do, or if we uh, are told that we must do something that the Bible tells us we should not do. Does that make sense? That if, 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 if it's a clear biblical absolute or biblical principle, That's when it kicks in what Peter and John told the officials there in Jerusalem when they tried to stop him from preaching about Christ. I'm sorry, but we must obey God rather than man. Otherwise, this applies. Obey the king's command. Now, you may say, I didn't take an oath, but uh, perhaps if you did did your citizenship, you came into the country, you would know that to become a citizen of the USA, you do need to take an oath and you state that you will uh, uh, give your allegiance to the country and obey the, the laws of the United States, and, and the oath ends with, so help me God. So perhaps there was something similar to that in the practices of that day. 
But as believers, we don't need that oath because we have been told in Scripture these very things. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. I think we understand that. Several places, I'll read one more. First Peter, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, part of your alignment under, under him, to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors or who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong. So you see uh, kind of a, a funneling down to more local officials. Submit to government. There are laws I don't like, laws that I don't think are best uh, for the country. But the line is, does, am I being asked to directly Uh, contradict a biblical absolute or am I being forced to do something that I by biblical not just preference but biblical conviction know that I can or cannot do verse 3 continues in this vein and here's where it gets a little bit uh, confusing what he's saying but so I'm going to uh, try to communicate best what what I think it's saying do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence probably suggesting don't be hasty to resist or abandon your allegiance. Uh, it doesn't say that it would never happen, but, but don't do that quickly. And do not stand up for a bad cause because he will do whatever he pleases. Let's think about that. There are times when uh, you cannot stay under the authority of someone else um, the writer and, and, and pastor Warren Wiersbe was commenting on this idea, and he was describing a man he knew that worked for a printing company, and when the printing company decided they would print pornography, he says, I've got I to quit this job. I can't, I can't live under that because I can't do that. It might be applied to government officials. <clears throat> if you worked in government and you were being asked by some governing official to do something that God said not to do or to uh, promote it, uh, endorse it, Uh, enforce it, you might have to step away. But don't be hasty. And the next line, probably connected, do not stand up for a bad cause, perhaps in this context means, and don't plot to overthrow the king. Don't be party to an insurrection. Violence against government that you don't agree with is not biblical. We do well to Remember that. Do not stand up for a bad cause because a king's word is supreme and who can say, what are you doing? Because you could pay with your life and it might just be a a reckless waste. So can you do nothing? If government is ungodly, government is doing something that's wrong, is there nothing you can do? I think actually that that's what some of these next verses are saying, verse 5 and 6. Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though or when a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Again, there's a few other terms. Uh, One translation has the word delight, but it probably means everything, not every delight. And so, the concept is basically that if you have this wise heart, remember going back to verse 1, that's the goal. We want wisdom, and God gives wisdom when we please Him. If we have a wise heart, and there is something that we feel needs to be addressed, 
something we cannot go along with, the wise of heart would have the understanding, the discernment, the proper time, the right sense of how to do that. When or though or as a person is weighed down by misery. So there's some kind of oppression. So what do you do? Well, one size doesn't fit all because every government uh, situation is different. Other countries today are facing something far different than Americans are, and we're facing something different than the next country. So I'd like us to look at simply a flavor from Scripture of how various men and women of God responded to human government when there was a, a tension of right and wrong. Okay? Let's go to Nehemiah. Not going there, I'm sorry. I'm just going to give you an example. You won't have time to, to, uh, to read through all these. But Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah had it on his heart to go back to Jerusalem, which Babylon had conquered, and rebuild those walls. That could be controversial. But to be, rebuild the walls of God's city of Jerusalem. And he was praying and fasting for an opportunity. And one day the king noticed that he was sad. And having prayed, he said, the reason I'm sad, king, the king asked him, why are you sad? He said, the reason I'm sad is because of the walls of my city. And in answer to prayer and preparation, and Nehemiah even said, I was scared to say this. The king said, you go. In fact, I'm going to sponsor it. God answered, don't assume the worst, Nehemiah. Esther was the uh, godly queen of the godless Xerxes. And behind the king's back, really, Haman had made this evil decree that would have wiped out the Jewish people, Esther's people, there in, in uh, the land of Persia. And so she asked the, people to, the, the Jewish people to fast, implied fast and pray. And again, in preparation, she was courageous and went before the king. And the rule was that if you went to the king and he didn't, hadn't called for you, you're going to die unless, unless he lifts up his scepter. And so she put her life in her hands, but God worked, and he lifted up the scepter, and his beautiful wife came in, and he had no idea what was going on, and instead he issued a reverse decree, and it was the enemies of God who experienced the judgment and punishment. There was young Daniel and his three friends taken captive. The worst of situations to actually be wrenched out of your country and taken to another and pressed into service and they were supposed to they were picked as a select team of young men who were going to serve the king and said you have to eat this food and, and some of the food violated their conscience because old testament or mosaic law said you can't do this it won't be prepared right and so daniel in his young mind but a wise godly mind requested a waiver politely said how about this how about you do a test for us and we will eat the food we choose to eat and not what the king is putting before us and see how we do. And of course, if you've read the story in Daniel chapter 1, you know that actually they were the ones that were the strongest and, and in fact, God gave them opportunity and promotion in the country. Or fast forward, there's several good experiences like this in Daniel, but the older Daniel under Darius had this practice of praying three times a day 
and people could see him through the window. And, and his, the other government officials, Daniel was a high, the highest government official, others were jealous of him. And so they got a rule that said, you can't pray. What did Daniel do? Actually, he did nothing. He just kept praying. But he was found out. And the penalty was to be thrown into the den of, Dan, uh, of lions. And at the seeming loss of his life, he was thrown in, but God shut the mouths of the lions and it turns out God again answered and God responded and who got thrown into the lion's den that got eaten up? It was the ones who plotted against him. Do you begin to see a pattern of God working when people simply but wisely and with discernment and respect ask and see God work? And then Peter and John that I referred to earlier we're told, don't proclaim Christ. And they said, it didn't, say, it didn't say they got angry or belligerent or demanded their rights or started an insurrection or started a petition. Just said, I'm sorry, but we have to keep preaching about Christ. We have to obey God rather than men. They ended up in jail and God got them out of jail. And you just begin to see that God is calling us to sometimes indeed do what we must do, not what the government tells us to do, but to do so with respect and, and to watch him work. Ask, don't demand. Think the best, not the worst. And just see what God might do. This is all discussed, of course, in the context of joy. That, that a wise person who is a godly person will have a bright face. And so we're not supposed to fret about these situations. We're supposed to just keep living life and see what God does what opportunities, what attitudes we should have, and watch him work. So that was one joy stealer. Sometimes when you think of human rulers and, and imperfections, the other is a bit deeper and even broader, and that is injustice, where we begin to question God himself. So it's one thing to be to make sure that you are submitting to human rulers, but ultimately we need to be submitting to the sovereignty of God. And so what the wise person does is he not only submits to imperfect human rulers and acts with discernment, but the wise person accepts God's sovereignty about all the stuff that it seems God isn't fixing. The times we think that maybe God isn't doing something right. So let's see what he says about that. Since no man, verse 7, since no man knows the future... Who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. And as no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. Solomon has a great proverbial kind of vague way of saying things, but these metaphors are actually very helpful. The first statement is very simply, you don't control the future. Okay? You don't know the future. And uh, we don't have power over that. We are, we are finite. And the implication, though, is, because this is, this is Solomon, a godly man, writing to other godly people, we don't control the future, we know who does. Example, we can't control when we die. The example is the wind. You don't have power over the wind, and so you don't have power over the day of your death, or as one translation puts it, over your spirit, small s. In other words, when your spirit will stay and when it will depart in death. Is this, a, is this, is this fatalism? 
We don't know when we're going to die. It's just going to happen. It's random. No, this isn't fatalism. Fatalism is when someone believes that no one's in control. Accepting God's sovereignty is when we know that God is fully in control. He created. He sustains. Or as we've studied recently, the prophetic truth, he, know, he holds the future. So it's exactly the opposite of fatalism. No one's control, in control and sovereignty God is in control, and he's in control, first of all, then, about your lifespan. First part of verse 8. Second part of verse 8 is interesting. No one, as no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. This is another place where we can trust the sovereignty of God. His illustration is, you can't just quit the army because you had a bad day. That's called desertion. So just as you can't get out of army duty service... So also the wicked cannot get out of facing their judgment. So we can trust God with the wicked being punished. That's not our job. And so there's a real sense of uh, three different ways. You can't control the future, can't control the day of your death, you can't control when God's going to judge the wicked. There's a sense of just prying our fingers of control off of the world. Could you see where this would impact whether or not you have joy or not? To, to be able to release what we were never called to control is a source of joy. He's preparing us to accept God's sovereignty now as he describes other cases in verses 9 through 11 because there will always be injustices. Here's the first one. Verse 9, all this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. Here's one, there's a time when a man lords it over others to his hurt. So there are people who oppress others. Then too I saw, verse 10, the wicked buried those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. Uh, here's where we have some different translations that say that they were forgotten instead of praised. I believe we should read praised here. So the idea would be that sometimes the wicked are praised. Instead of put down, they're praised. It doesn't seem right. Or verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong, so sometimes crime goes unpunished. Think, think it through. It's, it's, it, verse, verse 9, people who abuse their authority. Unjust government might be one that we've already covered. Slaves. Uh, abuse of many kinds. To his hurt. Mine says to his own hurt. It probably does refer to the, the hurt of the one being abused, not the hurt of the abuser. Workplace has injustices. or Young people, you're convinced, of course, your parents are not fair. Sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's coaches, sometimes it is parents. But this seems to be digging into the serious oppressions and abuses of the world. And we know there are horrible things that happen. The recent Me Too movement has brought a lot of uh, that type of abuse out of the shadows. But there's always been abuse, be it in families, be it in sweatshops, uh, be it victims of crime. Horrible things. We don't, we don't, we don't question. We, we hardly want to read about it in the news. So there will be that. And then verse 10, if it's indeed saying the wicked are sometimes praised, he's describing people who 
they live their whole life wicked, and yet nobody, nobody calls them on them. They just seem to keep going, and they die, and they have a great celebration as if they lived this wonderful life. And they used to always go to the temple, and they seem to be, they have this self-righteous persona, and, and they praise them when they die. That doesn't seem right. And then when the sentence, verse 11, for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people uh, are filled with schemes. In other words, if you don't have Swiss judge, justice, it's going to encourage, not deter, crime. In, in the effort to be a just society, we want people to have a fair hearing, and we don't want anybody to be unjustly punished, but we all know how sometimes it's frustrating because there can be instead the someone gets out on technicalities or somebody has endless appeals and like justice is never done. And so that's frustrating. Application here, perhaps, this is not what he was saying, but it it works the same in, in parenting where you need to have some kind of immediate addressing of, of, of your child's behavior so that you can make the correction or the discipline. Instead, sometimes we just we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and then everybody blows up and, and nothing is gained. But um, so, quite a list of problems of injustices. Solomon is calling on God's people to accept the sovereignty of God of things that have not yet been fixed in God's sovereign plan. It's hard. If there was no God, there would be no hope. But because there is a God who is in control, and a God who is sovereign, a God who is wise, and a God who is just, we can focus on him instead. And that's what he calls us to in verses 12 to 14. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, so this stuff happens. Yet I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. So what we cannot control, a lot of injustices. What we can control, God-fearing. This, is, this, this was an emphasis back in chapter 5. Be, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. We've been seeing this phrase, fear God. We're going to hear it more. Fear God. That is, worship Him, follow Him, submit yourself to Him. Because the key to everything, including joy, is going to be if you drop, put yourself under the authority of God. Step out of that, now, now you're subject to the, to the justice of God. But put yourself under the authority of God and it will go better. So even if someone would commit 100 crimes and get by with it, so kind of like, it, they usually don't, but even if it happened, it's better. This I know, literally, uh, that, that phrase reads, it will be better with those who fear God because they fear in his presence. So there's a sense that, that, that we are living with this full awareness that I am in God's world. And so we have a whole different view of reality than the rest of the world because we know that we are living in God's presence. And he, as believers, we often quit thinking that. We're just all horizontal and not realizing that we need to fear in his presence. And he says, it'll go better for you. Now, we could say, well, maybe he means it'll go better eternally. And it will, obviously. Heaven and, and God's eternal rewards for faithfulness. And, and we, we know, as, as New Testament truth, we know that, that it will be better eternally. 
But I really don't think that's what Solomon's addressing here. He's not, he's not pulling the heaven card out of his pocket and saying, that's the only way life makes sense is eternally. He's actually, I think, telling us that it'll be better here. Solomon doesn't, doesn't really discuss, he doesn't go towards heaven. He is talking about life here. Life, that phrase, under the sun, is what he talks about constantly. So, so what would it be? Is it, it'll be better. You'll avoid guilt if you live to please God and you fear him. You'll avoid the fear of punishment because then you'll also be not just willy-nilly disobeying laws because you don't like them. You, you, will, you will have better relationships and just take piece by piece everything that God tells us to do is to help us avoid the trauma of sin and so that we live not trying to see what can we get by with but what would bring us under alignment before God, just submit to God, fear God, and guess what? It'll be better and you will sleep better. Verse 13, then after the camera's been on the person who fears God, verse 13, he turns the camera to the one who persists in sin, verse 13, yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Though, again, we can maybe think of exceptions and, and, uh, and Solomon does, does too. But generally, selfishness and indulgence and taking advantage of others does not pay and leads to a shorter and at least a certainly unpleasant life. Verse 14, Solomon, again, uh, being the realist, goes back to the injustices. There is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. That's his phrase for saying... I hate it, I grieve it, I don't like it, but it happens. This is where we are under the sun, but it doesn't change what he said in verse 12, that it will go better for the one who fears God. Accepting the sovereignty of God with the injustices around us is like walking across a secure bridge. It, it, you know there's danger everywhere, but you are walking the path of security. And the, the fatalist would jump off the bridge on this side and say, nothing you can do, bad stuff happens, it's all out of control. And the control freak jumps off on this side and says, I've got to control everything. I've got to, I've got to keep my fingers on everything. I've got to make everything change. But he's describing things that we must submit to the sovereignty of God. Because you see, the fatalist and the control freak both end up on the rocks below. And only as we walk a path of trusting God with the things that God controls can we have, and he gets to this point now, joy. So can we release the inequities and the frustrations, accepting, embracing, and, some of, and you know your own situation, some of the most difficult circumstances that you have faced that are unjust. And you know the pain and you know the, the, the ways you've, you've searched and prayed and asked God and, and struggled with his nature. And he calls us to trust him with the unfairness of life because of who he is. And then he calls us to joy. Verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. 
Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. There, there is such an abrupt shift from verse 14 to verse 15. It's almost like you accidentally hit the remote and changed channels. Is this the same guy? He's just been telling us how unfair things, that things can be wrong in government and there's things unfair in life. And so his conclusion is, so enjoy life. And going, does that follow? If we understand what he's saying is to accept the sovereignty of God, it, it does follow. So he says, I, I call you, even in an unjust world, as a wise person, enjoy life as a gift from God. Just keep eating, drinking, and being glad because God's in charge. For 20-some years, I, uh, every May, would take a week and go to Moody Bible Institute's pastor's conference. They don't hold it anymore. But uh, those are great, great experiences. And, and there was five or ten years there when you'd arrive in the auditorium, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred pastors. There'd be a great big banner across the front, huge block letters. Relax. For once, you're not in charge. And so we could kind of like... Okay, someone else is, is running what's happening up here and making the decisions. And much as I, I love my job in the ministry in this church, you know, it just always kind of sometimes seem like, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to have church or not today? It's cold. It, somehow I always feel like there's some. But God is calling us to relax because we're not in charge. And you, in your place of work, in your, in your, in your parenting, or you're leading something where you feel that burden of making decisions. Or you see the injustices around you, or the injustices around others. It's like God is calling you to say, relax. You're not in charge. And that, then, is why he could commend the, the enjoyment of life. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. So the reason we can keep enjoying life when the government is arguing, when people are disagreeing, when culture is changing, and when bad things happen, is because God is in charge. And in this passage, God is giving us permission to enjoy the regular stuff of life that's good. Keep enjoying your relationships. Keep enjoying your family Keep doing the same things you are doing. You, cannot, you and I cannot fix everything. It's really the same as this New Testament truth that, I don't know about you, but I go back to this over and over. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Be marked by gentleness. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Talk to Him about it. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about the key things this passage teaches us. First of all, it's a command to rejoice. This joy is not the result this is the command from which other things rejoice, uh, result. This, this is not just the emotion of happiness. This is the attitude of joy. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is an attitude. Choose to rejoice. 
The wise choose to rejoice. It brightens their face, verse 1. Can, can you grapple with that and begin to practice chosen joy? Well, how do you do that? Next command, do not be anxious, pray. So you're, 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 you're understanding the bridge of, of the sovereignty of God because our security is in His sovereignty. So we rejoice in that security that I can go to Him and tell Him absolutely everything. That's a command too. It's a two-sided command. Don't be anxious, instead pray. So choose joy, choose to pray instead of worry. Now we see a result and the peace of God. That goes beyond understanding. In other words, it's an irrational peace. It's, it's the kind of peace that your, your neighbors and friends and co-workers won't really understand because they've not experienced such a thing. But we can. And so God has given us permission to rejoice. In fact, a command. And he calls us to pray and not to worry. And then he says, I'm going I'm to send you some supernatural peace. Probably need a daily dose, but... I'm going to send you supernatural peace. It'll guard your hearts and your hearts and your minds in or because of Christ Jesus. So keep doing what God's called you to do, regardless of what is happening around you. Enjoy your children. Go to coffee with a friend. Watch less news. Do more fellowship. Think more about the world, the word than the world. Think more about what God says than what's on your news feed. And just keep doing it. Part-time work, full-time work, whatever God calls you to do, your mom, whatever it is, keep doing what God called you to do. And then make sure you're found guilty of contagious joy that comes from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please address our fears and anxieties. We know we must surrender them to you. And wherever you have uh, touched us with your truth today, may it be your spirit that both addresses the real issues and then brings uh, healing security that's found in your sovereignty. And then may we evidence the, the joy and peace that the world doesn't understand but so desperately is, is, is desiring that we can be those who communicate the peace that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.